We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. Our text will be verses 16 through 18. While you're finding your place, let me just remind you of the chapter emphasis. The chapter opens with an imperative. Let us go on. Let us mature. Let us grow up in Christ. An imperative to grow and develop in the Lord. That imperative is followed by the presentation of an impossibility. Verses 4 to 6, that speaks of an impossible thing. And it relates to a Christian life mislived or misdirected. And then following that warning of impossibility comes the aspect of an illustration, a part of an instruction, back to an illustration, and then the final instruction. The illustration at the first was a garden illustration, seven and eight, followed by the instruction in which the writer makes it clear that he does not hold the suspicion of the Hebrews to which this letter was written as being in the most dangerous place, but rather that he has confidence that they are growing and developing in Christ as they ought. But then that is followed by the second illustration that we looked at last week together, which is the illustration of Abraham. Abraham, who uh, was a man who responded to the promise of God, and then after a period of living before God, was tested as to his faith and passed the test of Genesis 22 with flying colors. Therefore, God said to Abraham, Surely I will bless thee. Now, God said he would bless them before Abraham passed the test, And Abraham's passing to the test did not secure the promise of God as previously made. But, nonetheless, Abraham's faithfulness in response to God, built upon his faith, is that which allowed God to bring Abraham's inheritance of the promise within Abraham's own lifetime. And that pattern of promise connected to faith, and inheritance connected to faithfulness continues to be the theme here in this sixth chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 16 to 18. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show Unto heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Father, this morning we are thankful for the development of this text in our hearts and minds as it appeals to the believer to live a life of honor and integrity before the Lord Jesus. As we continue to work with the instruction portion of the text this morning, we again ask for the Spirit of God to be our teacher. We again ask that you would bring a sense of stability to our minds and, and a sense of good purpose of heart as we hear of these things and receive these things 
as from your good hand, that we might sojourn in the days of our earthly sojourn, as did Christ, in faithfulness, in the performance of the will of God, and encouragement and strengthening of others. Thank you for those that are here to hear. We ask your blessing upon our study. We pray today in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. You with God, you with God can do it. You with God can do it. It takes the two. You cannot live the life of God's pleasure. You cannot live the life of God's expectation for you as a believer apart from the enablement of the Holy Spirit of God. It takes two. It takes two. Dr. R.T. Ketchum was an Ohio pastor that helped to lead a national movement of commitment to the scriptures and the principles of biblical separation back in the 1930s. He was a champion of a preacher with somewhat of a larger-than-life persona. I only heard him preach one time in my life, toward the end of his earthly life, but I have to say that that sermon was absolutely unforgettable. One of his most famous sermons dealt directly with the theme of our text in Hebrews chapter 6. Ketchum appealed to the believer's diligence with a catchphrase that has been well burned into my mind. He said repeatedly, don't stand staring up the stairs, start stepping up the steps. In relationship to the Christian life, don't stand staring up the stairs. Start stepping up the steps. God expects our faith to be demonstrated in diligence. God expects our faith to be demonstrated in persistence. We are to be enduring and active, as was Abraham, who, Scripture says, obtained God's promise. We can all progress in faith because God is faithful. We are not to stand staring up the stairs of Christ-likeness, but are to be engaged in stepping up the steps, becoming more like the master day after day and hour by hour. That really is the overriding theme and point of Hebrews chapter 6. God expects our faith to be demonstrated in diligence and persistence, but it takes two in order for our faith to be demonstrated in diligence and persistence. We are to be enduring and active. We are to be as Abraham, and if I were to take a, 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 a title for this particular emphasis of teaching in Hebrews 6, 16 to 18, I would emphasize this idea of it takes two. This title not only reflects uh, the stated truth of two immutable things securing the inheritance of the believer, but the broader truth that we can progress as God's children because God himself is faithful. We, God and I, God and you, can do it. With God, you can do it. That's the preaching emphasis of the text. Can't tell you how long it was. I remember first grappling it with it with verse 18 when I was a teenager. It says that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. 
possible that God lied is one thing. This is by two immutable things. I can't tell you how long. I'm embarrassed to tell you how long it took me, took me to figure out what the two immutable things are. What in the world are the two immutable things that are confirmed by the fact that God cannot lie? Well, I understood it a little better on June the 21st, 1975, when I pledged to Sherry that which I had promised her long before, and I said my vow, and when I said my vow, I said, so God helping me, because God must help in order for the vow to be sealed and secure and stable and uh, brought to the place of fruition and promise over a lifetime. And that concept then helps me to understand that the two immutable things of verse 18 are God made a promise. He could not take an oath of a greater name than his own, because there is none. And so he swore on his own name. And so both the promise and the oath taken, or the promise and the vow taken, are both from God who cannot lie. Oh, how many days I spent working on that one when I was a kid, trying to figure out what that was saying. I gave it to you for nothing this morning. I hope you appreciate that. Uh, Nonetheless, the emphasis it takes too. The apostle delivers the dynamic truth by calling upon a certain element of Roman civil law, uh, by calling upon a certain reference to Jewish moral and ceremonial law, and his argument develops along the character of God. So the first thing we're going to look at in this particular text of Scripture is the writer delivers this dynamic truth of progression in Christ by calling upon an element of Roman civil law in verse 16. For men verily swear by, swear in the sense of take an oath, men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. The system of law among the Romans was highly developed and, of course, serves as the basis for much of our legal system here in the United States of America. Pledges, or oaths, were common, especially in the business arena, which today, of course, there's a whole facet of law in that business arena that is called contract law. Contract law, the particular facet of Roman law that is referenced in verse 16 is contract law. Oaths or pledges were a means to ensure promise made. Two aspects of the Roman oath are called to bear witness because it takes two. First, the Roman pledge or oath had to be made before a superior. Uh, The individual that was setting forth the oath, setting forth the, uh, the, the contract, would do so before a superior. Uh, children learn that in the context of a home. They work something out, and before it flies, it has to be approved by the parents. And in the context of government, it has to be prov- uh, approved by the government. But this idea of, uh, of contract law gaining a sense of approval in the name of a superior is a significant thing. So when you and I have contracts in business, or even when we take care of legal business in our day, it is not uncommon for us to go to an authority 
and when everything is done and the paperwork has been submitted, uh, they sign off on our paperwork. When we have the signature, then we say that our contract has been approved. We have, we have the authorization of the signature on that contract. Well, God can't go to anybody for a signature because there is no sing- signature greater than God's. And so uh, 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 men swear by the greater, and of course, God can't do that. That's going to be the point of verse 17. But not only was the Roman uh, pledge or oath to be made before a superior, but secondly, the superior uh, 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 is going to lend his name uh, to the oath giver as to credibility. Uh, uh, we uh, have a little thing in America called a, a notary. And for certain legal processes, you have to go to somebody who is a notary, who is, who is saying that they saw you sign, they saw you uh, enact the aspect of this contract, and then they add their name uh, to your document as approving that document. Men indeed swear by the greater. Men indeed swear by the greater. You do it at the county courthouse. You do it at the, uh, at the Department of Transportation. Uh, you do it in many, many facets of the aspect of life. I was talking during the break to Joe about his canceled trip in July, and uh, uh, his visas eventually came, but not in time for the July trip, and now it's a September trip. But nonetheless, the thing they were waiting upon was the signature of a greater. When uh, you have the signature, when you have the paperwork submitted and signed off on, well then, you're good to go. That's the idea. That is the pattern among men, a pattern that was established uh, if you, uh, as it were, uh, in, uh, in the legal sense in which we know it today, way back among the aspect of the Romans. Secondly, the oath taken serves as a guarantee, bringing to an end the worry or doubt concerning the matter of which has been signed off on. It provides a means or a venue by which a person may move forward with confidence. If there ever was a problem, There is a clear path to follow onto resolution. That's the idea behind the phrase, uh, the oath of confirmation is to them an end of all strife. The one to whom the oath is given may rest upon the oath, may rest upon the contract signed, the signed contract. That's the idea. With credibility of a superior, the individual enjoys stability. Resting upon the contract, resting upon the oath. And you and I, indeed, in many occasions, in many venues, rest upon the oath of men. It's not a bad thing, but you and I, in many occasions, legal, in many occasions, business, rest upon the aspect of that superior oath contract signed. The writer goes on to deliver then the dynamic truth of progression in Christ calling upon an element of God's character, verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show, to demonstrate unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. God is the one that made the promise. God is the one that signed the oath. He is the superior in whose name the contract has been executed. 
The writer delivers the dynamic truth of progression of Christ calling upon this element of God's character. Similar to the Roman law, God made an oath in addition to his promise to believers. God's person and character governed both the promise and the confirming pledge that was made. He cannot swear by a greater. And both the promise that is made and the oath that is signed or the, or the, or the, the confirmation that is given by God himself uh, is indeed uh, uh, flying under the banner of the fact that God cannot lie. That God is truthful and uh, there can be no deceit in that which he does. Now, the three theological truths that are referenced concerning God's self-revelation here involve the, uh, the immutability of his purpose and the impossibility of falsehood. Again, three things. God's self-revelation, God's self-disclosure. If God did not want to reveal himself, you couldn't make him. If God had not revealed himself to us, you could not force the hand of God to, to disclose to you uh, uh, what he is like or what he, all that he did. In fact, you and I only ultimately know of God that which he has disclosed to us. We do not have the capacity to be able to comprehend God apart from his self-disclosure. One of the reasons why we're so big on the Bible is because we know the Bible to be the ultimate self-disclosure of God in our generation. Yes, the creation uh, and, uh, uh, and the things around us declare the handiwork of God. We can certainly know of God uh, in some way by nature of what we observe in science, by what we observe in creation. We certainly know something of God by intuition. We are born with the stamp of God within our hearts. Though the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Nonetheless, ultimately, our sense of God our understanding of God comes because of the special revelation that he has given to us in his word. The three logical, uh, theological truths upon which this idea of the character of God is raised is, number one, God's self-revelation. Number two, his unchangeable purpose, his immutable purpose. Do you ever change your mind? Have you ever heard that old phrase, it's the prerogative of a woman to change your mind? Have you ever heard that? Well, I think that's nuts sometimes, especially if you already built the thing. Bad time for a woman to change her mind after the thing's been built. But I tell you, everybody, that's just a, a worldly thing. But everybody at some point changes their mind. I have I, uh, I many times have said to Sherry, uh, you know, I'm kind of feeling like Chinese, kind of feeling like Chinese, kind of feeling like Chinese. Want to go to Chinese? On Saturday, let's go to Chinese. Saturday comes and I say, I'm feeling like steak. Now, you never did that, did you? You never changed your mind. Well, one of the things that uh, is very, very important to the self-revelation of God is the fact that the Bible declares that God doesn't change his mind. Ever. What's so good about that? Me. What's so good about that? You. God will never change his mind about me. Or you. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Sometimes I think when God sees and is reminded of what he built, he might want to change his mind. He won't. It is impossible 
God is immutable. He does not change. His immutable purpose in Christ Jesus to save us does not change. That's glorious. And then the third thing is the impossibility of falsehood. And those three things, self-revelation, immutable purpose, and impossibility of falsehood, are brought to bear in verses 17 and 18a, because God cannot swear upon anywhere one greater, for he is the greatest of all, but that didn't stop God from determining to bring out into evidence, verse 17, the word shoe, Old English, S-H-E-W, we more commonly spell it S-H-O-W, show, but the word means to bring out into evidence that which is true. God has brought out into evidence the reality of which the writer speaks. His purpose and plan for believers is brought out into evidence. Without God's determination to reveal himself and his purpose for mankind, you and I could not possibly know anything about God beyond what is known in creation and intuition. But God determined to reveal his purpose to us, and that is contingent upon the fact that God doesn't change or alter his plans. His counsel, his wisdom is fixed, and it is forever. He cannot lie. So the promises that he has made to the believer and the pledge that he has given to the believer are guaranteed. His unchanging character backs his promise and pledge. You and I can rest assured in his promise. You, with God, can live like Jesus. But you need to understand, it takes the two. It takes you with God. We, and the specifics of God's promises to the believer in scriptures, confirm that the pledge of those promises to us are facilitated by the Holy Spirit. And so if you think about the aspect of this idea of how it is that God works in our lives uh, to make us stable and productive and progressive in Christ, well, it takes the Spirit and the Scriptures. It takes the two in the life of the believer to accomplish the things that God would have to be accomplished. Now, one more thought here that I think is important. Uh, God didn't have to make a vow. God didn't have to make an oath. God did not have to make one. He did not have to give one. His promise is sure without any confirming oath whatsoever. In fact, you may recall that Jesus instructed his disciples to be marked by such a level of integrity that they never had to swear or never had to take an oath as a means to confirmation of something that they said. But God swore to you and me in Christ so that we would never have a reason to worry or doubt concerning his promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that is why the writer of Hebrews, verse 18, calls this the believer's strong consolation, or if you will, concrete comfort. The concrete 
comfort of the believer is that if God just said it, that would be it. Promise alone is enough. But God, seeking to bring to us, during the days of our earthly uh, uh, lifetime, a, a strong consolation, a strong encouragement, a concrete comfort, not only promised it, but confirmed it in an oath. That extra step is a phenomenal thing for God to do for me. It's a phenomenal thing for God to have done for you so that you would be able to settle your soul in this troth. Yes, you must have faith in Christ. And yes, you must be faithful. There is no allowance in the scripture for the kind of wishy-washy, namby-pamby Christianity that is professed all around us in this day. We sing, living for Jesus a life that is true. And in this text, we are told that the promise of God and the oath of God is particularly directed towards our understanding of the necessity of faithfulness. That is, the people of faith, we have this marvelous declaration that God gave evidence of his character to us so that we might be commended to give evidence of our character to God. Faith matters. Faithfulness matters. No one here can be confused that by the grace of God through faith alone we are saved. But once you're saved, your life ought to be lived to the honor of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Your life ought to ring true, and you ought to bear the evidences of Christ in life by nature of a commitment to be faithful. Thirdly, the writer delivers this same dynamic truth of progression in Christ, calling upon an element of Jewish moral and ceremonial law. We read, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. That refers back in verse 18 to the portion we now cover, which is the phrase, have fled for refuge to lay upon the hope set before us. Again, verse 18, that by two immutable things, the promise and the oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, a concrete comfort. I don't take much comfort in laying on the concrete, but nonetheless, I understand the concept of a concrete comfort, a strong consolation for those who have 
fled, here's the phrase, fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before him. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the messianic uh, uh, phrases that comes out of the Old Testament poetical books and out of the Old Testament uh, prophecies, particularly 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, Hannah's uh, uh, prophetic uh, song, uh, is uh, uh, the connection of Messiah to the term the horn of salvation. And most of the time when preachers talk about Christ as the horn of salvation, they talk about the deer horns and the big one that they shot and all the points on it and how big it was and how it's a, a symbol of power and it's a symbol of, of virility. And uh, they talk about the horns on an animal head. That's not bad. Uh, that's a good thought. Uh, you can certainly go there. But that's not the biblical thought. Uh, the biblical thought uh, in, uh, in Hannah's uh, prayer, 1 Samuel 2, and in the Psalms, uh, and uh, then in Mary's Magnificat, and in the Benedictum of, of, uh, of Zechariah, uh, in, uh, the, concerning the, the birth there at the time of the birth of John the Baptist, uh, references to the horn of salvation there have to do with a different kind of horn. And that would be the horns on the altar, or the ha- horns that are on uh, the table of incense. And under the Old Testament law, Six cities were established in Israel as cities of refuge. Three were on the east side of Jordan and three were on the west side. God appointed those cities of refuge uh, so that if a person accidentally killed someone, they could flee to those cities and find safe haven until the elders of those cities investigated the case. And if indeed it was deemed to be an accidental death, then the offender would be allowed to live in the city without fear of a slain man's family avenging themselves. You read of those cities of refuge in Numbers 35 and in Joshua chapter 20. Furthermore, there is the Old Testament account in 1 Kings 1 where Adonijah fled to take hold of the horns of the altar of the incense of the tabernacle as a means of safety from King Solomon. Adonijah was, uh, as a result, spared. And that's now reference to the horns that I'm referring to, the horns of salvation. Uh, the horn of salvation that was built into the altar of, uh, of sacrifice and the horns of the altar that, uh, of incense are, are just these ornamental things on the, on the, on the four corners of the, of the thing that was built during the Old Testament law of sacrifice. And if a person uh, uh, was seeking uh, a place of safety, a place of refuge. They could go and, and lay their hands on the corner of uh, that altar, and they would be safe. Just like you were when you were a kid playing hide-and-seek. Safe! And uh, you would be safe until uh, the case could be adjudicated. And so listen to that phrase again in relationship to your life and mine with faith in Christ, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, Uh, might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Uh, The hope that is set before us is not the horn of an altar or the horn of salvation as a decorative place on the the brazen altar or the altar of incense. Uh, It's not a place uh, to grab onto physically Uh, in order that we might be uh, safe until our case could be adjudicated. 
No, uh, the idea of finding a place of refuge in the day of trouble is in this text verbiage, Old Testament verbiage, to once again point our minds and jog our minds towards the blessedness and the fullness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. In a way similar, the believer has found refuge according to the appointment of God in Christ Jesus. God set up the place of refuge for us. Christ is our refuge. In him alone we find safety from the sins that trouble us. Jesus Christ is our eternal refuge. No avenger can touch us in Christ. Even Satan himself, in making accusation, will be told of the ever-living Christ to back off when a believer places that sense of confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ is shed. Run to the place of safety was an Old Testament concept under the law in which a person uh, enacted physically in a day of trouble in order to get to a safe place. But you and I have been led of God to understand that God has provided for us a shelter a high tower, a place of safety, a place of refuge, a bunker of of comfort. And I'm not talking about your bed at home. I'm talking about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. So the idea here is uh, uh, of God's uh, uh, character and Roman law and Jewish law as to the cities of refuge and the horns of the altar, come together in this passage onto the overriding theme of the chapter, which is, which is, as I can best summarize it, you that are people of faith in Jesus Christ must exercise yourselves diligently to be faithful. Faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. In a word of summary, what exactly is the promise and the purpose of God in the life of the believer? Answer, Christ-likeness. To be like Christ. You're in Christ by faith. We talk about position. You're in Christ. We talk about progression, development. Strengthening, stability, maturity. You're in Christ. We can talk about permanence. On this basis of Christ, on this basis of Christ and the death that he died for our sins and the life that he lives, which we follow, is the base upon which God expects us to progress in this life of ours. He expects our diligence, He expects our obedience. He expects us to follow the pattern of all those who have gone on before us in faith and faithfulness. You and I have very little to say about the believers that claim to know Christ and live for themselves. You and I tell the stories of the saints who express faith in Jesus Christ and live for Christ completely. You and I ought to follow the faith 
of those who were not only marked by faith, but marked by faithfulness to their Lord. By the way, if you use the internet and you pull up the name Dr. Ketchum, you will not first read of the Ohio pastor who played large in America's Back to the Bible movement of the 1930s. You will rather read of his missionary and Michigan resident son who disgraced Christ with much moral failure on the field and here at home. I'm telling you again this morning something that we've been saying week by week by week in the study of Hebrews. Diligence on the part of a believer matters. It matters now. It matters forever. You with God, you with God, can live like Christ. You with God can live like Christ. Otherwise, it can really get ugly. May God help us that the name of Christ is well represented by us as we attend to our diligence before God. With God, we can do it. Father, thank you this morning for the listening ear and for the opportunity to consider again the magnitude, the glorious nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only delivers us from our sins of the past, but whose blood cleanses us from all confessed sin and from other matters that we are not even aware of as of yet that we might live before you in honor and integrity and find of thy blessed spirit the empowerment to live a life of testimony, a life of expectation of reward concerning the future to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us then as your people in this week to continue to think about Jesus and to talk about Jesus and to represent well the Lord Jesus in the ebb and flow of our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.